Everyone, welcome again to the Trauma Podcast. Uh, today we have a very special episode as I'm joined by my partner and I guess my division chief, uh, Dr. Johnny Morrison, uh, here at the University of Maryland R. Adams Cali Shop Trauma. Johnny is a vascular surgeon. Uh, trained in Glasgow. He has undergone trauma training here in the United States and is our chief of endovascular trauma uh, here at the University of Maryland. Thanks thanks for joining us, Johnny. Joe, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So so I have some great questions for you today. Um, The first of which I think, you know, you have a very unique position. I don't think there's another place in the country that has even a division like that of, of endovascular trauma. Uh, what exactly is endovascular trauma management? What kind of things or services does your service provide? And, and do you, I mean, what's the utility of that kind of a functioning divisional separation? Thanks, Joe. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question that is a little bit fluid as we kind of find our way with a lot of this technology. Um, essentially, the notion of, of endovascular trauma management has come about from endovascular technology, which has previously really been looked at as a standalone thing that is often delivered by a specialty service, such as interventional radiology, um, interventional cardiology, these sorts of groups that have that particular skill set. Um, With endovascular trauma management, because a lot of our problems are time-dependent pathologies, we've tried to integrate those skills into a trauma service. So our endovascular trauma service fits in with the bigger trauma service. We're all trauma-trained surgeons. Um, So all of your faculty are dual-trained? Yes, sir, that is correct, Uh, which is currently a long road. Um, But uh, what what we do is we, we try and take some of these techniques that you will often need in a pinch and you will need quickly and we try and integrate those into the the, the process of care um, often at the same time as operative intervention and and these sorts of features the the really the key tenants are about hemorrhage control a lot of this is about hemostasis it's about either the control of, of urgent bleeding or or the management of urgent revascularization but there's also some spin-offs that relate to IVC filter use and, and all of and, uh, and access procedures, one of your particular favorites, uh, which uh, you know get bolted on as, as part of providing a service to a, a wider trauma service. So it, it sounds like there's a lot of capabilities that kind of endova- that encompass the endovascular trauma management kind of platform. Um, and I guess I have a lot of questions about how you envision these, what situations we should optimally use those capabilities in, uh, and what specific, you know, in, injuries, and when we pull the trigger on managing various trauma entities. And I, probably the easiest way for me to organize these myself, and this, this is the way I'll phrase the question to you, would be to kind of look at some specific ones. So let me start with solid organ injuries. It's, yeah. That's a common one that we see on our service. Uh, we get it involved early to talk about can we augment the, the management of specifically, primarily, hepatic and splenic injury. But those are two different organs. Mm-hmm. What do we, what do, what, what's common about the things that we bring to bear from an endovascular perspective to them and when should we do it? And what may be different in the considerations? So picking on those two particular organs um, per se, the, taking spleen as, as the first and probably the more straightforward example, um, the, the first thing to remember is that there is, there is a cure for splenic injury, which is splenectomy. Um, and, and that's very different to the liver where we're taking out the liver 
has a whole bunch of different consequences. So with the spleen, um, if you've got somebody who's hemodynamically unstable, then ultimately you can take the organ out and, and that will cure your patient of that particular problem. So the endovascular management of splenic trauma tends to be focused on stable patients who have vascular lesions that we can consider um, uh, that we can consider selective non-operative management or, or enhancing their non-operative management. Um, and often those issues are not um, time dependent. That doesn't need to be a rush at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and then there are techniques within splenic embolization, uh, either proximal or distal, that, 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 are, that is a more nuanced question that we can get into maybe with a, with a later podcast. But with spleens, that's tend to how I tend to look at them. The endovascular management of splenic trauma tends to be focused on stable patients um, who have vascular lesions. The liver is when, a when you different say. Just game. let me clarify. When you say vascular lesions, mm. what do we? What do you? What kind of vascular lesions are you? Are you talking about there? So, in in the main, we're talking about pseudoaneurysm. So we're talking about vessel disruption either within the parenchyma or within the hilum where we have a contained uh, disruption of the, of the vessel wall. We have some bleeding um, either contained within the parenchyma or contained within the kind of adventitia of the vessel. Um, and they're the sorts of lesions that we know uh, over time can lead to either failure of non-operative management with, with a delayed bleed that can happen either early or late. And the premise of, of using endovascular trauma management is to um, reduce the risk of that failure of, of those delayed bleeds by intervening early. And, and that can be in the form of embolization. Other vascular lesions include AV fistulas, um, extravasation uh, of contrast, all of all of these sorts of things. Okay. And I, I interrupted you. What about liver? How's liver different? So the liver is a completely different ball game. Um, the liver is, is inherently a more complex organ. Um, there's often a lot more variation around its anatomy, which makes it one of the one of the more interesting organs. Um, and endovascular trauma management in that setting is one of these things that is often used in conjunction with operative surgery in hemodynamically unstable patients. Unlike the spleen, where you can do a laparotomy and just take it out, the liver, um, you're, you're trying to preserve as much liver parenchyma as possible. And um, the, the, the sort of role where we typically use this here would be, uh, let's say in the context of an unstable patient, they get taken to the operating room. Um, if you've got a, a complicated injury that involves um, you know, the, the, the parenchyma deep inside, then there's a range of endovascular options that can help you um, control that bleeding without necessarily having to completely disassemble uh, the liver. Now, a lot of this is judgment call, and we've yet to quite um, tease out all of the, the all of the nuances of this. There are some lesions that are particularly amenable to uh, surgery, such as you know the left lobe. It's very straightforward to take out the left hepatic lobe, and maybe injuries in that in that anatomical region are less um, uh, less amenable to endovascular management in terms of embolization of. Um, uh, of, of the injury but if you've got say something like a, a, an injury that involves say a gunshot wound to the liver and you've got something that goes through uh, the, the the central portion of your right lobe then being able to control that uh, with embolization is, is particularly helpful. The other thing that sets us apart from some of these standalone services is that we can do this at the time of operative intervention and then we also have other tricks up our sleeve like for example uh, the use of the bridge balloon to control the uh, intrahepatic IVC for retrohepatic injuries, which are a, a particular note of what, concern. What is the bridge balloon? 
So the bridge balloon is an intravascular balloon that you put through the femoral vein, which is is longer than than a typical balloon. Uh, the length of it is is about 12 centimeters, and it sits uh, across all of these um, hepatic veins that that can be avulsed in in the setting of severe blunt trauma. And that's a particularly challenging injury complex where quite often you've mobilised the liver and you've brought everything up and you're staring at this hosing uh, hepatic vein that is is really hard to get to. And there are some tricks up our sleeve that, that we can use to help that, um, such as the bridge balloon where we can tamponade uh, that, that region uh, for a period of time that allows your operative surgery to be a lot more effective. Okay. Well, well thanks. That's a, that's a great one. Let's shift now to uh, another one that confuses me because there's a lot of things we can bring to bear for pelvic injuries with instability and evidence of hemorrhage and bleeding. And, and that comes in all different characters from the patient who's actively trying to code to those that are just annoyingly requiring blood products. But in general, bleeding from the pelvis, you can throw a binder, an external fixator, uh, pelvic packing, reboa, angioembolization. How do we work? You know, at least a couple of those are things that fall under what you would describe as an endovascular trauma management capability. Where do they fit in your mind into that kind of decision matrix of how to bring all these things to bear in the right order? Um, that that is a real challenge uh, in in terms of how to join all that up, and crucially, how to also not use some of these adjuncts um, to extend the patient's timeline. In that, what you want is you want hemostasis as quickly as possible. And if your your hemostasis menu is a is a buffet, then you will spend a bit of time trying to pick what what you want to do. And and really, what you want is an integrated service that can that can pitch up with a uh, with with a algorithm of management that can affect all of that quickly. And for example, here we are uh, in the setting of hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. I think we have a pretty good system worked out where uh, a reboa catheter will go up in our trauma resuscitation unit and then we will take our patient straight through to our hybrid room. We can come from from above from from an upper extremity vessel such as the radial artery and we can come down and we can shoot an angiogram. Uh, And that's often while our orthopedic surgeons are putting on a frame to, to, to stabilize stabilize the pelvis. And when I talk about a frame, I mean a, a C-clamp put on both trochanters to, to bring things together. Um, if, if you've got a um, you know an issue of, of closing pelvic uh, pelvic volume. Um, so that, that's kind of our, our approach here. Uh, we found that that means that we often don't need to use pelvic packing so aggressively. Uh, and I can, you know, probably think of a couple of occasions where we've where we've had to use pelvic packing in the last few years for for these bed pal- ba- um, for these bad uh, pelvic fractures. Um, whether or not Reboa has been able to affect hemostasis of of your venous circulation by slowing down your arterial inflow um, remains uh, unclear but that's certainly one mechanism that's that's been um, postulated um, but the endovascular trauma service allows you to integrate all of those components and at least speed up many aspects of, of those particular hemostasis tools. Yeah, you know, it, I always find it challenging, even little things like the literature looking at Reboa or preperitoneal packing, right, as two different things that you either do one or the other. But when you look at the literature, I know from our review recently, just kind of eyeballing the ongoing aorta Reboa registry, 
about 20% of people got a Reboa and then went on to get pelvic packing because the you know you can, a Reboa can only stay up so long, yeah. but pelvic packing you can leave in for 24 hours. And I think pelvic packing, to my mind, is is all about venous control, and sure. Reboa is all about arterial inflow control, which, as you say, is is very much temporary uh, until you can either get uh, an angiogram and, and uh, embolization or um, or a sufficient period of stasis where maybe your your venous plexus that's been injured has had chance to thrombose um, but I see very much pelvic packing as being um, you know a tool for venous bleeding uh, rather than a tool for arterial control yeah and I know we do a lot of things uh, on your uh, the service of which you're the, our leader uh, and one of them um, uh, probably you know of the big three it would be to me solid organ injury pelvic injury uh, there's a lot of other random things, embolizations and access issues that we provide. But the, a big one is vascular injury, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's our, our bread and butter. And, you know, we also work with some, uh, you know, very senior trauma surgeons who did not grow up in the vascular area. So there's always this little bit back and forth. Is this better open? Is this better endo? And, and those are healthy discussions, I find. And they make me think more uh, coherently about how we should start to employ these technologies. But, um, you know, regardless, endovascular capabilities, the use of those for vascular trauma are increasing. I think any study you look at, those, they're being used increasingly in modern trauma. Um, but what are the, in your mind, what are the criteria to really establish whether endovascular repair for an arterial injury is appropriate? Are there at least some ideal patients that it's more applicable to? And relative to both the patient and the arterial injury, what's the optimal kind of mix for endovascular? I think uh, the sort of injury pattern that lends itself to endovascular uh, intervention are, are injuries that are difficult to get to. Um, if you have to have a very destructive incision uh, in order to approach uh, a particularly injured vessel, then I think uh, endovascular intervention is um, is particularly favourable. And, and the classic is uh, the blunt thoracic aortic injury, where both we avoid the physiological penalty of, um, uh, you know, uh, the consequences of opening the chest and clamping the aorta, plus or minus, um, you know, the physiology that's associated with going on some sort of extracorporeal circuit if, if you're going to use that. Um, so I think anatomically, where you're going to go is very important. And then the second thing is, and this is something that we've not always been great about, is we've got to have a technological solution that we know is durable. Uh, and we've kind of, using TVAR as, as an example, we've kind of found our way with that by accident, where that technology was originally designed for age-related disease and has then been translated into the trauma um, uh, you know, into the trauma space, we've never really rigorously assessed it in terms of you know a randomised trial or long-term follow-up. Um, however, it looks as if it's probably an okay therapy because we don't have large numbers of patients coming back with um, you know thoracic aortic catastrophic complications. So I think that we're probably okay. So I think the things that lend itself to, to endo are um, anatomical location and a durable technical solution. Now what we've seen is we've seen the kind of migration distally through the arterial tree and I think that the um, 
brachiocephalic and subclavian segments are also um, anatomically challenging regions which if you have an isolated injury i.e. you don't have an esophageal injury or um, you know bronchial injury then um, putting a stent is, is often quite attractive. We've discovered partly the hard way and also by thinking carefully about things that, you know, especially around the brachiocephalic, there are some technical challenges and, and therefore we've developed, you know, an experience where um, we're, we're probably better off stenting directly into the common carotid on the right side and excluding the uh, the right subclavian. Um, you know, we've translated some of the experience we've had with blunt thoracic aortic injury and, and, and the left subclavian. Um, so the, there are some things that we are very much finding our way um, around um, but we don't know about the durability of these things in 50 years time you know the stent grafts that we put into a young man now may have to may have to manage for, for 50 years and I don't know if he's going to have a stroke at year 30 and it would have just been better to split his chest and um, repair things with a with an autologous vein likewise in the iliac segment again we have fairly good data from the um, um, age-related um, experience, um, you know, stenotic disease, that, that that segment appears durable. Where the great unknowns are, are in areas where you have a lot of anatomical movement. So across joint lines, across uh, your anticubital fossa, across your popliteal fossa, um, all of those areas, uh, I would say that at the moment it would be unwise to... Um, do that endovascularly. Now, what remains to be seen is whether or not there are hybrid approaches where you can minimise your incision size and you can use um, your endovascular tools for imaging and for proximal control, um, or indeed whether or not you can use uh, an endovascular stent as a temporary means of revascularizing a patient, um, accepting that that's not a durable solution. You're going to put your dislocated knee in an X-fix, um, you're going to put a stent across it, you're going to revascularize, and then electively, once the swelling's gone down, um, you know, you're either going to bypass or um, or do an interposition graft, and, and that's that, uh, you know, is where you've got to start looking at all of these tools, not just as a one-stop procedure, but also in the kind of, you know, temporal uh, temporal distribution. So I think that, that there is a, a number of regions of, of growth that we don't yet fully understand. Well, and, and, you know, I'm biased, of course, but I love being on the front line of that kind of that cutting-edge technology and these exploring the potentials of these things, understanding the limitations, uh, and that we need to study as we continue to, to learn how to use them. But it's just really exciting, period. Oh, absolutely, um, and, and you're, you're, you're leading the way in that regard. You um, have been... I'm, I'm not leading a, a, a tired mule, my friend, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm happy to be part of it. Um, the uh, these are exciting technologies, right? And and uh, as I mentioned, the literature kind of shows that these things are being increasingly utilized, increasingly yep. discussed. Uh, but the modern trauma surgeon, uh, everyone on your service that works for you has is dual trained, right? So they they've done a formal vascular training and have some form of trauma training as well, either formal fellowship or uh, an informal uh, non ACGME fellowship training. Um, but you're. Your current trauma fellow who might be listening to this is not going to be imbued with those skill sets. Um, what is their role? They're not going to be an interventional radiologist or have a certification to the American Board of Surgery and Vascular Surgery. What is their role in this? And do you see a, a future where that role may change? 
Um, absolutely. Uh, I think that we've got a couple of questions in front of us. Uh, one is a, a bigger strategic question about trauma surgery as a uh, you know as a as, as a specialty group. Um, how much hemostasis do we want to do by committee? Um, and this is something that I think is of of concern where. We end up in the position where the trauma surgeon is the, the conductor of an orchestra and it takes time for all of these individual services that contribute a small piece. Um, many people, you know, talk in terms of, you know, it's, it's very responsible, you want to have, you know, the, the person that does this all the time, etc, etc. Well, to my mind, that, that could be the trauma surgeon. I mean, if, if somebody comes in hemodynamically unstable and requires an intervention, you know, to my mind, that is squarely within the, the, the domain of the trauma surgeon. And I worry that trauma surgery is kind of starting to get away from that in the context of vascular injury and um, some of these more novel techniques. So that, that's one issue. The second thing is training. At the moment, you know, within our, within our group, we have, um, you know, some dual trained guys that have, have really had a long training pathway. Um, that training pathway has involved um, vascular surgery for disease processes that are that have less relevance to trauma, and then at the same time there may well be a bunch of things. You know, like when you and I started here in 20, 2017, um, you know, we we have we have had to figure a bunch of things out because that wasn't included within our vascular fellowship training. You know, I didn't ever embolize a spleen, for example, as a vascular trainee. Um, and uh, therefore, I think that there is a need for trauma-specific vascular and endovascular training. And I don't think that that amounts to doing necessarily a vascular fellowship. I think it amounts to doing a period of training that ideally would be recognized that has trauma vascular specific skills. You know, how you do an angiogram, um, sure there are core principles, absolutely, but there are trauma specific things, like for example in the pelvis, going from the femoral in the pelvis can sometimes make things harder and you may well have a hostile groin because you've got catheters hanging out of it, wounds, various other things. So there are there are things that are unique to trauma that are not necessarily communicated in, in conventional fellowships with some of these other endovascular providers. So personally, I would like to see the evolution of a vascular trauma curriculum. And, and we're kind of starting to lay the groundwork for that here. And I would hope that other large volume level one trauma centers will um, kind of follow this lead. Um, ultimately, I don't see this as being necessarily the preserve of the trauma surgeon. Um, level two centers that maybe don't see the same volume as we see in, in some of the larger centers um, will still ultimately probably have a subspecialty model. Uh, but I think that those groups can also be included within some sort of formalized trauma endovascular training. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time, and I really do salute your efforts to try to get it, get us moving in that direction to find that happy ground. I mean, there's I think there's certainly, in the realm of trauma, uh, a need um, and uh, a desire amongst us, at least a subset of folks, to really partake of kind of this, the kind of things that you're talking about. So um, it's been a great conversation. Um, I, You know, as, as well as I do, that we end uh, each of our podcasts with a series of random questions. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is my greatest fear. Yeah, to get to know uh, the person that's being interviewed. 
Uh, I know you quite well, but I don't think our listeners do. And quite frankly, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a redneck from South Texas. You are one of the only Scottish people I know. You're my greatest Scottish friend. And uh, I'm going to really kind of gear your random questions towards better understanding you as a Scotsman and some Scottish things that still confuse me. Um, All right. So with that in mind, are are you ready? Hit me me with it. My first question is... uh, what exactly are the appropriate indications for wearing a kilt? Um, if being in your birthday suit is not considered appropriate, then being in your kilt is. Can I go to Walmart in my kilt? Absolutely. Can I go to a wedding in my kilt? Absolutely. Seems like a pretty ubiquitous piece of equipment to own. You want to be a little bit careful crossing wire fences. That, sir, may be the most sound advice that I've heard you uh, give me at least in the last hour. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, what is the more cherished and recognizable Scottish character of the modern age uh, of the following choices? William Wallace, King Macbeth, or Fat Bastard from the Austin Power series? Um, regrettably, Fat Bastard, who I have a certain level of kinship with, um, is, uh, <laughs> is, is probably the one that, that hits popular culture the most. But historically, I think we all cherish William Wallace. Okay, fair enough. There's a lot of good choices there. What exactly is haggis, and when should it be consumed? Haggis is... Uh, <sighs> So haggis is a wonderful, wonderful food which, um, you know, historically came about as being kind of one of the uh, one of the vehicles that um, the meat left over that, that nobody else wanted was kind of ground up, put in a sheep's, sheep's stomach with some spices and some oatmeal and Now when you things. say meat, you, you mean all the bits. Yeah. Most people wouldn't call lung and, and the kidneys awful, meat. The, the, the kind of the bits extra parts. That, the bits that nobody wants. Okay. The, you know, grind up the hooves and put the uh, the ears and the. It's like the American hot in. dog, but they've called it haggis. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's then put in some sort of receptacle of which you know, the other thing that's conveniently lying around is often the stomach. So uh, yeah, that gets packed with all of those, and then it gets boiled and served. Ideally, uh, ideally you want to open it up with a with a saber or a sword or something like that. Um, ideally with uh, with the pipes and some whiskey. Um, but yeah, that's haggis. It's the description of it doesn't match the culinary experience. Can you have it for breakfast? Absolutely. Can you have it for a formal dining experience? Absolutely. Can you carry a piece of pocket in your pocket around on call and munch on it? Absolutely. It also sounds everything Scottish sounds so utilitarian, utilitarian. And, and, and wonderful all the way. Yeah. Well, our our final question for you is quite simply. I know you have many talents, but what would you say to the listeners and to me is your most unusual talent? Uh, goodness. Uh, oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, um, Can you, you sing like bon, John Bon Jovi? Can you juggle? Do you do yoga? <laughs> I do none of those things. Um, what's my most unusual talent? Wow. Um, I can uh, I'm pretty as I've learned recently with my five year old son I'm a pretty good shot with a with, with a Nerf gun I can uh, hit him in the eye at uh, about 
15 meters <laughs> quite I'm successfully. Sure that, Don't tell his mother. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well. Well, Johnny, thanks so much for taking time. I know you've been, you're really busy, and uh, I, uh, our listeners, on behalf of our listeners and on behalf of myself, I really appreciate you being here with us, and uh, thanks for doing it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Joe. Take care. And this has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Please take an opportunity to look through the rest of our offerings and uh, send us comments or um, suggestions for additional topics as you see fit. Thanks.